This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Friday, February 17th, 2023. Dozens of top U.S. lawmakers of both parties attending the Munich Security Conference in Germany in a show of support for continuing to supply military and economic aid to Ukraine with the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion coming up. Including Senate Republican Leader Mitch McConnell and Democratic Senator Chris Coons will hear from both. A recreational balloon club in Illinois thinks one of the aerial objects recently shot down by the U.S. military over Alaska could be theirs. White House National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby asked about critics who say President Biden overreacted to the spate of flying objects detected over the past week. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine reassuring residents of East Palestine that air and water testing shows no indications of a toxic chemical from the recent train derailment, and he gives updates on what federal aid will and will not be coming to help soon. Senator Rick Scott, Republican of Florida, amending his proposal to sunset all federal programs after five years and reauthorize those which deserve it to exempt Social Security, Medicare, Veterans Benefits, National Security, and other essential services. This after he was criticized by President Joe Biden for wanting to cut Social Security and Medicare. We'll hear from the White House Press Secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, and from Senator Rick Scott. And a commission in Canada finding the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was justified in invoking an emergency law to put an end to last year's protests over COVID-19 lockdowns and vaccination requirements that gridlocked streets in the capital city, Ottawa, and closed border crossings with the U.S. A Reuters story from Munich, Germany. Nearly 50 lawmakers from both major U.S. political parties on Friday attended the start of Europe's premier annual security conference to affirm bipartisan support for U.S. aid to Ukraine. Four delegations of Democratic and Republican leaders and members of the Senate and House converged as one of the largest groups of U.S. lawmakers to attend the Munich Security Conference since its inception in 1963. Hundreds of politicians, military officers, and diplomats from around the world gathered in Munich a week before the anniversary of Russia's invasion. The U.S. Senate Republican leader, Mitch McConnell, one of those lawmakers at the conference, he was part of a panel on Ukraine with top officials from Ukraine, Poland, Sweden, and France. Mitch McConnell, when President Biden says the U.S. will stay the course with Ukraine, what do you take that to mean? Well, first, I don't know who that quote was that you started this discussion was from the Washington Post, but that's obviously a person who doesn't know what they're talking about. So (laughs) let me just tell you what the people who are actually elected to office and who actually make the decisions about how long America is committed to this, think 
Russia has to lose in Ukraine. And we can't put a time limit on it. But the one thing we can do to address the problem that was raised by our friend here from Ukraine, speed up the decision making. Get the weapons there quicker. The whole defense production uh, throughout NATO is under stress. There's no question about it. Uh, we're providing a lot more ammunition and weapon systems than we were anticipating. Uh, but we need to speed it up to cut through the bureaucracy, get you the weapons you need as soon as you need them so you can win the war. So as far as I'm concerned, and I think I can speak pretty thoroughly for most of the members of my party in Congress, we're in this to win because losing is not an option. Imagine how much it would cost all of us, all of us, if Russia won. And what about the implications in the Far East when Prime Minister of Japan said the single most important thing you can do to send a message to President Xi is to beat Putin in Ukraine, you know that this has worldwide implications. So we need to change our thinking. Bob Gates, who was one of the great secretaries of defense in the United States, served under both Bush and Obama, said that after the Cold War, we all took a holiday from history. We thought we're never going to have evil on full display again. Everything's going to be just fine. Well, evil is back. And peace through strength is the only way to deal not only with the present, but with the future. Can we talk? The Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican from Kentucky in Germany at the Munich Security Conference, part of a panel that included officials from Ukraine, Poland, Sweden, and France. TheHill.com reports that Senator McConnell also said at the Munich Security Conference when talking about how the U.S. will approach aid to Ukraine going forward, don't look at Twitter, look at people in power, look at me and Speaker Kevin McCarthy, look at the top Republicans on the Senate and House committees that handle armed services, foreign affairs, appropriations, and intelligence. The Hill article continues, he made his comment after Donald Trump Jr., the former president's son, tweeted, not one more cent for Ukraine until Americans get the care they deserve, in reference to a train derailment in Ohio that spilled toxic chemicals into the Ohio River. Other U.S. lawmakers at the Munich Security Conference, the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat from New York, who told the McCain Dissertation Award Dinner there that he's proud the U.S. Senate has approved $113 billion in military, economic, and humanitarian aid to Ukraine over the last year. Also, Senator Chris Coons, Democrat from Delaware, who spoke to CNBC anchor Hadley Gamble about the war between Russia and Ukraine. Last week, I spoke with the IMF's managing director, Kristalina Georgieva, and she told me that Ukraine is going to need between 80 and 84 billion dollars this yes. year alone uh, just to keep the, the wheels of government and their war machine moving. It's a huge number. Already, we're seeing donor fatigue. Do you believe that the nations of the world are going to come together and get that money to Ukraine? I'm confident they will. Um, we in the United States Congress appropriated another $45 billion just in December to ensure that the Biden administration has a pipeline of funds, both for resupplying our own military stocks, for supporting uh, the budget of the Ukrainian government, and for providing cutting-edge military weapons, hardware, and sustainment uh, for Ukraine's counteroffensive this spring. Can they do that without aircraft? Can they win without it? I'm sorry? Can they do this without the aircraft? Can they win without it? 
at some point, we are going to need to provide security guarantees for Ukraine once we've reached some point where on the battlefield um, there is a ceasefire in negotiations. At that point, we're going to need to provide Ukraine with the most cutting edge conventional weaponry possible to deter Russia from renewing its attacks on Ukraine. And by that point, we need to be in a position to provide them with modern advanced fighter jets. I think we should begin the training and the preparations for that now. That may be a year or even two years away, um, but I do think we should prepare for providing Ukraine um, with all the weaponry they need that is conventional, that can secure their future against um, an, an incessant and aggressive Putin. Senator Chris Coons, Democrat from Delaware at the Munich Security Conference in Germany, interviewed by CNBC. Russian President Vladimir Putin hosting the president of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, for talks in Moscow. Russia's state-owned TASS news agency reporting the two discussing military cooperation and security issues. Russia and Belarus are close allies. Russia used Belarusian territory for the initial invasion of Ukraine one year ago. Back to the Munich Security Conference, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky opening with a video message calling for faster deliveries of weapons by Western nations and referencing the name of a panel at the conference, a session that invoked the biblical story of David and Goliath. This panel discussion is called David on the Dnipro. I consider it as a rightful respect to Ukraine and to everything our people are doing. But this year, determination was shown on different banks, and not only of the Dnipro, Spreem, and Seine, Thames, and Potomac, Vistula, and Tiber. David is now all of us. He is a whole free world. David is everyone who left that there is no alternative but to defeat Goliath who came to destroy our life. Being David, being David is fighting, and we are fighting. Being David is having a sling to win. We do not have yet the David's sling from Israel, but I believe it is just temporarily. Now I would like to thank for the powerful support and, and mighty weapons. I thank Olaf and Emmanuel who are present here on this panel. And I thank all our partners present here in Munich, the United States, Britain, all the countries of the EU and all from the whole world. I'm grateful to everyone who gives this link to Ukrainian David, thanks to which thanks to which Russian Goliath has already started to lose his ground. Thank you very much. Thank you. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky in a video message to the Munich Security Conference. U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris also at the conference, meeting today with the German Chancellor and French President, and also with U.S. Senators and members of Congress there. And on Saturday, Vice President Harris will be giving a major speech at the conference. C-SPAN will be covering that. You can check our website, cspan.org, for TV and radio airtimes and also for the video posted after it happens. On Monday, President Joe Biden travels to Poland to mark the anniversary of Ukraine successfully fending off Russia's military invasion. A preview today at the White House with John Kirby, 
the Strategic Communications Coordinator of the National Security Council. The president is very much looking forward to his trip to Warsaw next week, uh, which is ahead, of course, of the one-year anniversary of Russia's brutal and unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. Uh, after he lands on Tuesday morning, he will meet with President Duda of Poland to discuss our bilateral cooperation as well as our collective efforts to support Ukraine uh, and to bolster NATO's deterrence. Poland, as you know, is a close NATO ally and has been a critical supporter of Ukraine over the past year. President Biden will thank President Duda and, in fact, the Polish people for the $3.8 billion in military and humanitarian assistance that they have provided to Ukraine over the past year. And for all the efforts that the Polish people have done to generously welcome more than one and a half million refugees from Ukraine. The two leaders will discuss Poland's important logistical role as well in helping the U.S. facilitate deliveries of military and humanitarian assistance to Ukraine from not only the United States, but from our allies and partners. The President will also have a chance to thank Poland for how they have hosted now an increased number of U.S. forces, including those that are permanently stationed and those who were deployed to Europe as part of our force posture adjustment, adjustments, the ones that we announced last year following Russia's invasion. There are some 10,000 American troops in Poland right now, most of them on rotational orders. On Tuesday evening local time, President Biden will deliver remarks in Warsaw on how the United States has rallied the world to support the people of Ukraine and as they defend their freedom and democracy. President Biden will make it clear that the United States will continue to stand with Ukraine, as you've heard him say many times, for as long as it takes. And on Wednesday, President Biden will give a chance to meet with the leaders of the Bucharest Nine, the otherwise known as the B-9. And these are largely the, the group of eastern flank uh, NATO allies uh, who are basically and quite frankly, literally on the front lines of our collective defense right now. And he'll do so to reaffirm the United States' unwavering support for the security of that alliance and, and transatlantic unity. The leaders will discuss our efforts over the past year to strengthen NATO, which is stronger and now more united than it was, uh, than it has ever been, and how each of our nations will continue to work together as allies to continue our unwavering support for Ukraine. Now, this is an important trip for the president, and it comes at an important moment. It also follows days of diplomacy at the Munich Security Conference, where the Vice President, the Secretary of State, the Senior Director here at the NSC for Europe, and many other cabinet members, administration officials, members of Congress, are all meeting with our allies and partners to discuss our enduring support for the people of Ukraine, as well as our transatlantic unity and our ironclad support for our NATO allies in light of all the changes to the European security environment over the last year. And as the President believes, that security environment has changed. Not is changing, not will change, has changed. John Kirby is a spokesperson for the National Security Council with reporters today in the White House briefing room. This is Washington Today. A story from Fox News, Senator Ted Cruz, Republican from Texas, took to Twitter Thursday to criticize President Joe Biden for ordering an F-22 fighter jet to shoot down what may have been a Hobby Club's science project off the coast of Alaska earlier last week. Senator Cruz joked that President Biden's decision to authorize the $200 million fighter jet to use a $400,000 missile to shoot down what may have been a $12 balloon serves as a, quote, powerful deterrence to high school students interested in creating their own at-home science balloons. This comment came after the Northern Illinois Bottle Cap Balloon Brigade 
An Illinois-based hobbyist club said their balloon that was floating off the west coast of Alaska went missing the same day a Lockheed Martin jet shot down an unidentified object matching its description. Back to John Kirby at the White House asked about this. Have you seen a story in Aviation Week that uh, an Illinois hobby club feels like um, their balloon might have been a candidate for, for the balloon shot a week ago? Any response to that because it's very particular location and the last set of data that they got? Yeah, we just can't confirm uh, those reports or, or uh, uh, what, uh, what the remains of that balloon might actually end up being. And uh, we haven't recovered it, so it's very difficult till you can get your hands on something. Uh, to be able to tell. And, and because of where it is uh, over Lake Huron, I mean, we all have to accept the possibility that we may not be able to recover it. But, but quick following on the president said yesterday, he stood by it, that, that it was out of an abundance of caution. But to, an anecdote like this, does it make any sort of reconsideration of perhaps this was an overreaction at any point over the past week? So I, I'd ask you to, just for a second, put yourself in his shoes. Especially, certainly in light of the Chinese spy balloon and uh, what was a, a very real, certainly very sizable um, and tangible security threat, surveillance threat to the United States in the wake of that. So uh, the military fine tunes their radar parameters to see more. And of course, they're finding more. And you got these three and uh, they're unidentified. They're not responding to any kind of communication. So we don't know who owns them or what their purpose is. Um, you know, and they're flying in, in sovereign U U.S. airspace. Um, they're also at altitudes that could affect the, the safety of civilian air traffic and, based on the flight path and the prevailing winds, potentially moving over sensitive military sites. And the military leaders come to you and they say, Mr. President, we don't know what these are. Uh, we're, we're concerned about what they could be and about where they could be going and what the purpose might be. And we recommend that you, you take these down uh, in the safe, in, you know, in the interest of safety and security of the American people and out of an abundance of caution. The president acted on that recommendation because he takes so seriously his responsibilities to protect this country, our secrets, our interests, and our people. Um, so the short answer to your question is absolutely not. Uh, you know, it, given uh, the situation we were in, the information available, the recommendation of our, our military commanders, uh, it was exactly the right thing to do at exactly the right time. Now, going forward, and you heard the president talk about this yesterday, uh, we're going to make sure we've got some new rules in place for how we make decisions in future circumstances. Yeah. That doesn't mean, and uh, it, it doesn't mean, and you heard the president say this yesterday, it doesn't mean that there won't be additional shootdowns if he believes there's a legitimate threat to our safety and security. But it does mean that we're going to put a new set of parameters on the decision-making process going forward. John Kirby is a spokesperson for the National Security Council, taking reporters' questions in the White House briefing room. A statement from U.S. Northern Command says that the U.S. has finished efforts to recover the remnants of the large balloon that was shot down off the coast of South Carolina. And early analysis confirming the conclusions that it was, in fact, a Chinese spy balloon. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine saying today that air and water testing in the East Palestine area has produced no indication of contamination. He says nothing has been found in the more than 500 homes tested so far and nothing found in the streets. And municipal water system also showing no sign of contamination. 
And for homes with well water, the recommendation is to use bottled water until they are actually tested. Governor DeWine saying that a video making the rounds showing a creek near the crash site contaminated is accurate. The creek has been dammed. The site will be cleaned up. This all comes after a train carrying 50 cars through East Palestine on the Pennsylvania border ran off the tracks on February 3rd. Ten of the cars carrying the toxic chemical vinyl chloride and early on authorities did what they called a controlled release to prevent an explosion. Governor Wine today also saying that although Ohio does not qualify yet for federal FEMA assistance, the state is filing an application just in case it qualifies in the future. And the governor announcing that federal health teams are coming in to help. I know there's been a lot of questions about FEMA and calling in FEMA for aid. At this point, based on what FEMA has told us and continues to tell us, my chief of staff talked to them again this morning, we do not qualify for assistance. Although FEMA is synonymous with disaster support, they're most typically involved with disasters where there's tremendous home or property damage, tornadoes, flooding, hurricanes. That's why we do not expect that FEMA will come to East Palestine. However, to make sure that if in the future, if in the future FEMA is ever needed, uh, we want to preserve our rights to be able to ask them for help. So to make sure that if FEMA is ever needed in the future to help residents in regard to this crash, we're going to preemptively file a document with FEMA to preserve our rights in case we need their assistance in the future. Uh, We believe that the railroad should continue to pay, and we're going to insist that they pay. Uh, Whatever damages have been caused, the railroad is responsible for those damages. We're filing this paper with FEMA just in case in the future we need that, Let's say, for example, the railroad stops paying for whatever reason. We're still going to go after the railroad, but we want to make sure that there will be support for people if that support does, in fact, stop from the railroad. Let me move now to HHS. Um, We know the science indicates that this water is safe, the air is safe. But we also know very understandably, that residents of East Palestine are concerned. Uh, They ask themselves, you know, they might have a headache. Uh, They might ask themselves, is this a headache? Or is this caused headache that is in fact caused by the train derailment? Um, Or other medical symptoms they may be experiencing caused by the train derailment. Uh, These are very legitimate questions. Residents deserve an answer. Uh, They have suffered a great deal. This has been a traumatic time for them. This has been a a horrific trail train derailment. And we understand, um, you know, what have some understanding of what they've they've gone through. Um, We've asked for medical experts from the United States Department of Health and Human Services to come to East Palestine. This request has now been granted by HHS. We are establishing, we are now going to establish in the next several days, a clinic uh, in East Palestine. 
Uh, this is a clinic that will be established by the Ohio Department of Health. We will get assistance and help from HHS. We want them to be able to engage with the residents of East Palestine. We want them to be able to answer the residents' questions, evaluate symptoms, provide their medical expertise. Um, the people who will come in, and we expect them in early next week, will also have access to the best experts in the world in regard to chemical exposures. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine, Republican, at a news conference today in Columbus. That audio coming from the Columbus Channel. Senator Marco Rubio, Republican from Florida, sending a letter to President Biden calling for the resignation of Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. Senator Rubio writes, Secretary Buttigieg refused to acknowledge the disaster in East Palestine, Ohio, until his intentional ignorance was no longer tenable. Even after acknowledging the tragedy, he continues to deflect any accountability for the safety of our nation's rail system. The circumstances leading up to the derailment point to a clear lack of oversight and demand engagement by our nation's top transportation official. Senator Rubio says this is part of a two-year-long pattern. And during historic maritime and surface transportation disruptions in 2021, Secretary Buttigieg was completely absent. Congressman Bill Johnson, Republican from Ohio, his district includes East Palestine, was interviewed today on Fox Business Channel. The people there are very, very concerned. They don't they don't really know who to believe. Uh, I, I was there uh, last Monday. I was there for the town hall meeting on Wednesday. Uh, I was there again yesterday with the EPA administrator. Um, and uh, look, I know that the mayor and uh, and everybody is saying that the water in the village uh, is clean, that it has been tested. Uh, and and I believe the science. So I, I think the city water is testing okay. Private wells, uh, they still have a long way to go to make sure that people that are uh, get their water source from a private well, that, uh, that, that those are being tested too. And that's where the state EPA comes in and they're trying to lean as far forward as possible. All the residents have to do is ask and they'll get their water tested. Uh, Congressman, uh, Senator Marco Rubio, uh, is calling for the Transportation Secretary, Pete Buttigieg, to step down. Do you think he should resign, sir? Well, you know, at, at this point, he, he's kind of absent uh, without leave anyway. He's AWOL. I mean, he hasn't done his job. Uh, we've had a disaster of a train crash. And, uh, and what does he do? He, he plays it down uh, as if it's just one of the many thousand or, or so that happen every year. He's made no effort to come to uh, East Palestine and see what this disaster has inflicted on the people of that community. So long story short, yeah, I think he ought to go. He ought to get out of the way and put somebody in that seat that cares enough about the people to come and see him. Check on him. Congressman Bill Johnson, Republican from Ohio, interviewed on the Fox Business Channel today. The Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg made those comments that the congressman referred to during an interview Thursday on WFMU-TV Youngstown, Ohio, which is about 20 miles away from East Palestine. 
Now, you are the secretary of the U.S. Department of Transportation at a time when Norfolk Southern admits this was the worst rail disaster in at least 35 years. So when are you planning to go to the site, Mr. Buttigieg, and see things firsthand? Well, certainly interested in uh, getting to know the residents of East Palestine, the people who have been impacted by this, uh, and making sure that we take the lessons learned from this and fit it into the bigger picture of rail safety. There were approximately 1,000 derailments a year in the United States, some years more than that. And we need to keep pushing until the level is zero, especially the kinds of uh, incidents like you had here. Uh, the number of fatalities uh, and the number of injuries uh, on our rails is down compared to what it was a generation ago. But uh, the only number we're going to accept is zero. And any of the sites around the country uh, that have experienced fatalities, injuries, or in this case, uh, environmental problems are a concern for us. Okay. And, and will you be coming to East Palestine? I do hope that I'll have a chance to visit. Uh, right now, I respect the independence of the NTSB that is leading the in investigation there. Uh, but I know that uh, on the environmental side, my, my colleague Michael Regan is on the ground right now. Uh, I know uh, they've been doing a great job uh, uh, with uh, the tools that they have. And I'll be interested to visit the community in the future myself, too. The Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg on Thursday in interview with a Youngstown, Ohio TV station. A Fox News story has this. In Cincinnati, roughly 300 miles southwest of East Palestine, the Greater Cincinnati Water Works said Thursday that water sample testing found no detectable levels of the chemicals involved in the derailment and later a controlled burn and release. However, on Friday, the city reportedly announced it would stop taking water in from the Ohio River. Washington Today continues in a moment. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome back to Washington Today, available as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts and on the C-SPAN Now mobile app. An article from Axios, Senator Rick Scott, Republican from Florida, is firing back after his spending plan became a focal point at the State of the Union address saying President Biden and the Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell were unfair to attack him over Social Security and Medicare. Well, the original language in Senator Scott's plan, released about a year ago, read, all federal legislation sunsets in five years. If a law is worth keeping, Congress can pass it again. And the amended language is, all federal legislation sunsets in five years with the specific exceptions of Social Security, Medicare, national security, veterans benefits, and other essential services. If a law is worth keeping, Congress can pass it again. Note to President Biden, Senator Schumer, and Senator McConnell, as you know, this was never intended to apply to Social Security, Medicare, or the U.S. Navy. That last sentence in bold by Senator Rick Scott. Senator Scott also publishing an op-ed in the Washington Examiner today that has this paragraph, I have never supported cutting Social Security or Medicare ever. To say otherwise is a disingenuous Democrat lie from a very confused president. And Senator Mitch McConnell is also well aware of that. It's shallow gotcha politics, which is what Washington does. Reaction to all this today from the White House Press Secretary, Corrine Jean-Pierre. 
Last question yes, is about Rick Scott. Um, as you saw, he edited his policy plan on sunsetting federal programs after five years to say it now exempts Social Security and Medicare. He says to the president, to Democratic and Republican leaders that it was never intended to refer to Social Security and Medicare. And the White House's view, does that end this conversation? Is the discussion over this issue done? What do you think? <laughs> So I, I thought you would ask this question. So I have a couple of things to say uh, to uh, uh, to the senator. So um, I, I'll first say this, that the president congratulates Senator uh, Scott on joining the post-State of the Union red wave, as we have seen from Republicans, acknowledging that they are, in fact, been attempting to put Medicare and Social Security on the chopping block, because that's what they are actually saying, that they were indeed attempting to do that. So for the past year, and we have the facts, the past year he has explained the absence of an exception by saying, if it's worth keeping, we're going to keep it. But make no mistake, his true colors are undeniable and on the record. They have been speaking at both sides of their mouths here. That's what Republicans uh, in the Senate and Congress more broadly have been doing. Cutting Medicaid and Social Security benefits is a longstanding passion of Senator Scott's, as it, for, as it is for majority of the House Republicans who compromise uh, the Republican Study Committee and many of his Senate colleagues ranging from John Thune and to Ron Johnson. And so, for example, in 1990s, Senator Scott supported fully privatizing uh, Medicare. And let's not forget, just weeks ago, they all said and, and were saying that they wanted to repeal the Inflation Reduction Act. By doing that, uh, you certainly uh, do, it would be one of the biggest cut uh, to Medicare benefits if you were to do that. And let's not forget, the Inflation Reduction Act actually cuts down the deficit by $200 billion. So we thank Senator Scott for continuing to share his heart uh, with the world. And, uh, and we, uh, you know, with that, uh, I'll just leave it there. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre with reporters in the White House briefing room. Senator Rick Scott tweeting this afternoon, while Washington may not be worried about rising prices and soaring inflation, Folks across the Sunshine State continue to face the reality of Biden's botched economic policies. It's absurd and why I'm fighting to stop the spending spree and get our fiscal house in order. Senator Rick Scott was on the Hugh Hewitt podcast on Thursday talking about entitlement reform, the budget deficit and the cumulative national debt and the upcoming deadline to raise the debt ceiling or risk default. Yeah, we've had three national crises in 20 years, 9-11 and the two wars that followed. We had the 2008 fiscal crisis and then we had COVID. So the debt went crazy because we had deficit spending far more than we had, say, under Bill Clinton and early George W. Bush. The question is now entitlement reform, and that won't happen unless the president leads. Do you expect anything from Joe Biden on this? No, he's being reckless right now. He's been completely reckless that he will not have any conversation about raising the debt ceiling. I mean, I am going to bust my butt to make sure that we do not raise the debt ceiling without getting a real structural change. So we we preserve the things we care about, get rid of the things that might be nice to have, but you can't afford it. Senator Rick Scott, Republican from Florida, on the Hugh Hewitt podcast on Thursday. The Congressional Budget Office Director Philip Swagel interviewed today by the Bipartisan Policy Center about the CBO report this week on the federal budget projections. Our 10-year budget and economic projections that we released uh, this past Wednesday afternoon indicate a challenging situation. So for 2023, this year, our economic 
forecast has stagnant output and declining output in the first half of the year, moderately rising unemployment, gradually slowing inflation, and interest rates that remain high um, while inflation comes down. And then the, the economy subsequently rebounds. Um, as this happens, spending substantially exceeds revenues in our projections. And this is the, even though the pandemic-related spending lessens and the economy you know, has substantially rebounded from the pandemic-induced recession. And so, of course, the resulting deficits increase the government's debt. And you can see that in the charts in our report. Now, servicing that debt becomes a rising burden. The resources paid out to our lenders, these are net interest payments, including the foreign owners of Treasury securities, are not available for other priorities, and those rise considerably over time, both as a share of GDP and in nominal dollars. And so these debt payments, that's what I, I would point to as the you know, immediate uh, challenge facing us, that these rising debt payments crowd out other activities, whether someone wants to address the deficit, whether one, someone wants additional tax relief or increased spending for any purpose, for national security, for social needs, uh, anything, um, rising debt payments will, will pose a challenge for that. And then the, there's a longer-term challenge, and that longer-term challenge shows up now within the 10-year budget window. So the Social Security Trust Fund, in our projections, is exhausted in 2032 within the 10-year window. Now, Social Security benefits would be more than 20% smaller than scheduled if outlays are limited to what is payable after the trust fund exhaustion. So there's a sense in which doing nothing does not preserve Social Security, but affects the benefits that are uh, able to be paid out. And so the, the, the bottom line is that changes in fiscal policy must be made to address the rising costs of interest payments, the imbalance between spending um, and revenue, and to mitigate the potential adverse consequences of the high and rising debt. CBO Director Philip Swagel at a virtual discussion today hosted by the Bipartisan Policy Center. You can find the full hour-long program at our video library at cspan.org. Wall Street today, the Dow up 129, Nasdaq down 68, S&P down 11. President Biden with a statement today on the departure of Labor Secretary Marty Walsh. It was confirmed Thursday that Marty Walsh will resign to become the executive director of the National Hockey League Players Association. President Biden writing, Marty Walsh is one tough union chief. His record at the Department of Labor is a testament to the power of putting a card-carrying union member in charge of fighting for American workers. Marty has gone to bat for working families every day, and with his help, this administration has helped workers recover from a historic economic downturn and launch a new era of worker power. As for his replacement... The current Deputy Labor Secretary, Julie Hsu, has been endorsed by the Congressional Black Caucus and the Congressional Asian Pacific American Caucus. The White House Press Secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, asked about all of that. Both the CBC and KPAC have endorsed Julie Su to officially become the next Labor Secretary, in part because, quote, the inclusion of an AANHPI as a cabinet secretary is long overdue. Um, is she on the president's shortlist? <laughs> So not going to get into uh, uh, who's on the president's short list or not, uh, but I do want to address uh, the fact that we recognize that uh, it is a priority for the AAPI community, and we are uh, and we are proud that through our work with members of Congress and stakeholders, we've made the most diverse administration that ever, ever, not even in modern uh, politics, but ever. And so, uh, so, and we believe we have, and, and it's it's facts. Uh, we believe we have a historic uh, number of AAPI appointees at the level, including three 
three in cabinet, uh, all of whom are women, which is ha uh, Vice President Harris, as you know, uh, 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 Ty uh, as well. And so uh, we have a number of AAPI ambassadors like Michelle Kwan and Chris Liu. And it's, it's also about 14% of our appointees identified as Asian American, Native Hawaiian, or Pacific Islander. So this is a, a president that has made a priority to make sure that he has an administration uh, that looks like the country. Uh, and, uh, and, and that is incredibly diverse and historically diverse. So that is a commitment that he's going to continue to make. Uh, I'm just not going to get ahead of the president's decision at this time. White House Press Secretary Karina Jean-Pierre asked about the possibility of Deputy Labor Secretary Julie Sue being nominated for secretary. Now that Secretary Marty Walsh has officially left. And he's the first cabinet member in the Biden administration to step down. Story from CNN, five former Memphis Police Department officers pleaded not guilty Friday at their arraignment on criminal charges connected to the January death of Tyree Nichols, whose brutal beating after a police traffic stop was seen on video. To Darius Bean, Demetrius Haley, Justin Smith, Emmett Martin III, and Desmond Mills Jr. each faced charges of second-degree murder, aggravated assault, aggravated kidnapping, official misconduct, and official oppression. Second-degree murder in Tennessee is considered a Class A felony punishable by 15 to 60 years in prison. That reporting from CNN. Members of the Nichols family and their attorneys sat in the back of the courtroom in Memphis. And after outside spoke to the media, Rovon Wells is Tyree Nichols' mother. It's funny because I feel very numb right now. I feel very numb. And I'm waiting for this nightmare, basically, that I'm going through right now. I'm waiting for somebody to wake me up, right? I'm really waiting for somebody to wake me up. But I also know that's not going to happen, okay? I know my son is gone. I know I'll never see him again. But we have to start this process of justice right now. And I want each and every one of those police officers to be able to look me in the face. They, they haven't done that yet. They couldn't even do that today. They didn't even have the courage mm. to look at me in my face mm. after what they did to my son. So they're gonna see me at every court date, <laughs> everyone, exactly. and um, until we get justice for my son. Rovan Wells, the mother of Tyree Nichols, today outside the Shelby County Criminal Courthouse, Memphis, Tennessee, after the five former police officers charged in Tyree Nichols' death, pleaded not guilty. CNN article has this line after the pleas. Judge James Jones urged both sides to be patient, as the case may take some time. A commission in Canada has concluded that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was justified in invoking the country's Emergencies Act. In February 2022, to end protests that had blocked streets in Ottawa for weeks and shut down some border crossings with the U.S. The protesters, also known as the Freedom Convoy, were angry at the Canadian government's two years of COVID-19 pandemic-related restrictions, including a requirement that truck drivers be vaccinated. The Public Order Emergency Commission report says lawful protests descended into lawlessness, culminating in a national emergency. This was the first time that Emergencies Act had been triggered since it was created in 1988. The head of the commission, Paul Rouleau, making a statement today. While nothing in my report is in any sense binding on the courts that may hear legal challenges to the use of the act, I have decided to set out my own views on the invocation of the act 
and the measures taken under it. After careful reflection, I have concluded that the very high threshold required for the invocation of the Act was met. In particular, for reasons that I discuss in detail in the report, I have concluded that when the decision was made to invoke the Act on February 14, 2022, Cabinet had reasonable grounds to believe that there existed a national emergency arising from threats to the security of Canada that necessitated the taking of special temporary measures. I do not come to this conclusion easily, as I do not consider the factual basis for it to be overwhelming. Reasonable and informed people could reach a different conclusion than the one I have arrived at. Paul Rouleau is the leader of the Canadian Public Order Emergency Commission, making this statement in Ottawa today. CBC News in Canada writes that by invoking the act, the federal government gave law enforcement extraordinary powers to remove and arrest protesters and gave itself the power to freeze the finances of those connected to the protests. The temporary emergency powers also gave authorities the ability to commandeer tow trucks to remove protesters' vehicles from the streets of the capital. The law defines a national emergency as a situation that cannot be effectively dealt with under any other law in Canada. The Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau holding a news conference on the Commission's report. Today, the Public Order Emergency Commission stated that the very high threshold to invoke the Emergencies Act was met. He found that what we experienced last year was a national emergency that threatened the security of Canadians. Our job as a government is always to keep people safe, and invoking the Emergencies Act was the necessary thing to do to remove the threat and to protect people. We've all been through a lot over these past years. Canadians have been stressed, faced real financial challenges, and lost loved ones. Many people came to Ottawa because they were hurting and wanted to be heard. In our country, everyone has the right to protest peacefully. That's a fundamental right that government will always defend. Here in Ottawa, people are used to political activity and protests on Parliament Hill. But as the Commissioner said, lawful protests descended into lawlessness, culminating in a national emergency. Streets were blockaded in our capital city for weeks, causing serious harm to families and small businesses. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau at a news conference in Ottawa. Today's commission report also recommends an in-depth review of the Emergencies Act, looking at the definition of a public order emergency. Thank you for listening to Washington Today. Subscribe to C-SPAN's evening newsletter word for word to get the stories Washington is talking about sent to your inbox every day. Sign up at c-span.org forward slash connect. Have a good night and weekend and holiday. And Washington Today will return next Tuesday.